I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. You learn that being told no is not the end of the world, and that no doesn't mean no forever. All no means is not now, um, because something's not right. And the best thing about getting a no is you can ask, why not? Shelly Archambault is unapologetically ambitious, and her book with this title is now released. For 15 years, she worked as an executive in the male-dominated company of IBM and was the first woman of color to lead a company in the Silicon Valley. Shelly took the fledgling company MetricStream and turned it around by solving a problem while growing the company from 20 employees to over 1,000. At IBM, there was no one who looked like her, so she believed her chances of heading IBM might not work out. So she moved out to move up and be fairly compensated. She moved to Blockbuster in the 90s to a top position and doubled her income. I love this conversation with Shelley Archambault. So much good advice in this podcast. She truly passes along a lot of her leading she wisdom. It's my pleasure today to welcome and introduce my leading she guest, Shelley Archambault the former CEO of MetricStream, who Reid Hoffman, the co-founder and former executive chairman of LinkedIn, describes as the woman who pulled off the most incredible Silicon Valley turnaround you've ever heard of. So welcome, Shelley. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for being a guest. Shelley is on the boards of Nordstrom, Verizon, Roper Technologies, and Okta. She advises Royal Bank of Canada, RBC Capital Markets, as well as growing startups. She is regularly named on who's who lists in technology. She has been in the Wall Street Journal, uh, Business Week, USA Today, New York Times, quoted uh, in these publications, and the Financial Times. Shelley is author of Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risks, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms a book that will inspire you and provide the tools to enable you to fight the battles, make the trade-offs, and create the life you want. And I just, I can't wait to get this book. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I've got it on pre-order. It comes out in October, I believe October 6th. That's correct. Yes, great. Um, And Sheryl Sandberg, COO of Facebook, says about the book uh, and and of Shelley, in a world that too often tells women, especially black women, to stay small, keep quiet, and know their limits, this book says otherwise. So I can't wait to read it. I'm getting chills again. I just, I cannot wait to read it. Um, (laughs) Anything you want to say about the book? Oh, goodness. Um, Yes. This has been... A, uh, a labor of love for sure. I've always wanted to be accessible to people um, my whole career. And as I gained more and more responsibility, it became harder and harder to carve out the time not to respond because I still respond. LinkedIn, email, you send me something, I will respond. But I couldn't meet with everybody. Right. And so I decided, you know what, one day I'm going to write it down. I'm mm-hmm. going to write down the strategies, the approaches, the intention, what what made it work for me um, in hopes that other people can learn from that so that it can work for them. Because it really irritates me, Susan, that so many people, but especially women and people of color, Mm -hmm. don't even get the opportunity to contribute half of their capabilities. I agree. And that's crazy. I agree. So anyway, I want to give them tools to help them get those opportunities. That's wonderful. And I I plan on writing a book. I've been working on it for about 10 years, and I believe I'm going to call it Leading She. 
Um, and I am probably going to give some of the same advice. You and I have had similar experiences, but many times much different. And we're going to get into your career. But uh, yeah, that's what I want to do. And, and if Great. I help one woman, two women, a group exactly. of women, you know, I've I've done what I wanted to do. And you and I are kind of in a part of a chapter two, right? We're uh, not doing what we were doing five years ago. And uh, so, yeah, I think... Um, I think women need to hear what we have to say. That's what I think. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah, maybe we are the only ones that think that, but I, I you know, I think I have hope, you know, that there are women that want to hear what we have to say. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think there's so. a, a lot of things that we've learned, mistakes we've made, whatever that people can learn from. So no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Well, let's start with the name of your book, Unapologetically Ambitious. And I read your background, and I've listened to you, and I've probably researched you as much, if not more, than anyone I've talked to. And uh, you are ambitious. It's it's pretty clear that throughout your career, you were like me. You were ambitious, and you saw what you wanted, and you went after it. And I guess as a woman, as a woman of color, do you feel like you've had to apologize for being ambitious along the way? You know, it's it's interesting. It's not even so much that I feel I've had to apologize, but I did feel at times that I needed to tamper down my external, right, uh, communication of what I aspired to. Mm-hmm. So I remember, I, and I learned this really early, I was an intern at IBM, still at Wharton, and I was talking with one of the um, IBM people there, and she asked me, you know, what, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, I want to be CEO of IBM. <laughs> and she said, oh, I mean, the, the reaction was kind of like, oh, my goodness. And I thought, hmm. So the next time when people asked me what I wanted to do, I said, oh, one day I'd like to run a branch. I basically just brought down. So it was still on the path, but I didn't put the very top one out there. Right. Um, the really neat thing is the woman who responded that way is still a friend of mine. And she absolutely says, I knew Shelly when she told me she wanted to be CEO and damn if she didn't do it. <laughs> well, you got to be CEO. You just didn't, you weren't CEO of IBM, but I'm sure you, t- you tapped into your experience there. But go over your career. You've had an impressive career. Um, and if you can kind of summarize it for me, I know you've been at, at different companies and people will recognize some of these names. Um, but uh, you were one of the first Silicon Valley's first female African-American CEO uh, by heading MetricStream uh, for 15 years, and you were at IBM for 15 years. So you were in the corporate setting. You had responsibilities with IBM that are very impressive, and you rose the ranks there. But I'd like to hear about your career. Give us a feel for that. Sure. So, you know, I started out my career in sales and it was not, what should I say? It was was a non-obvious choice. Here I am coming out of Wharton and all my classmates are going off to be investment bankers, international financiers, uh, Procter & Gamble product managers, right? All these sexy, wonderful titles and industries. And I'm going to go sell computers. And they're like, what? Right? What are you doing? But I had done the research you know, I call it homework. And by the way, Susan, I believe you, just like you've done for me, we do homework forever. You never stop doing homework. Um, so homework is just about being prepared. So anyway, so I did my homework and it turned out that every single CEO at IBM started out 
in sales. So obviously that was the path, right? To that piece. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm going to do in terms of start out in sales. So I actually started out in sales, which, oh, by the way, I think everybody should have a sales job. Um, You learn so much in terms of selling. And I rose up through the, through the ranks in terms of into management, um, ultimately international management, had several global roles. And then ultimately at IBM moved my whole family to Japan as I was responsible for running a multi-billion dollar division in Asia Pacific. Mm. Um, and I got to the point where there wasn't anyone who looked like me above me in the company. My boss reported to Lou Gerstner, the CEO. I had done really well. Um, but I kept getting little signs that, you know what, maybe I'm not going to become CEO at IBM. Mm-hmm. But CEO was still my goal. So I said, you know, I've done large. I'm not going to go to another large company. It'll be more of the same. Let me take what I've learned and actually go build something. But again, I did my research. And a lot of people, you know, and most of them are guys, by the way, but a lot of people who leave big corporate jobs and go run a growing company stumble a time or two because it's so different. And yes. frankly, as a woman of color, I don't think I have as many strikes at bat. So I've got to improve my odds every step of the way. So I said, you know, let me go get a seat at the table job, right? A job where I'm reporting directly to the CEO. I sit in on board meetings so I can understand what the difference is and then go for my CEO job. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us uh, about the time you left IBM. You realized that you know that uh, you might you might rise to the top. I have to believe that you would have, but you know you don't you won't know. And but uh, you looked around and you said nobody. I don't see a lot of women. I don't see a lot of women of color. So to move up, I may have to move out. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you took a couple little spots. I was interested about your uh, stop there at uh, at Blockbuster back in the dot com yes. era. So tell us about the stops you made before you got to Metrics Stream. Sure, will do. And, and let me just, if you don't mind, let me just yeah. share one thing. Um, because at IBM, as I said, there were a couple signs, right? But one of the signs was I wasn't being compensated fairly. Um, you know, I, I always seemed to be paid much lower than other people who were in the job and performing not even as well as I'm performing. Yep. So, and even despite having the conversation right? I, it just never seemed to connect. And I'm not a mercenary. So I was never trying to earn like the top dollar I possibly could. But I wanted to be paid fairly. My fairly family had made a lot of, yeah, my family made a lot of trade-offs to mm-hmm. support my career. Um, so anyway, so as I started looking, um, Blockbuster uh, was one that came forward. And you have to understand, this is the 90s. Blockbuster is like a behemoth yes. at the time. And they were offering me the opportunity to build a .com, the blockbuster.com division, which would, you know, short term help them with advertising movies and ultimately do things like rentals online. But ultimately, they wanted it to be the platform for how they delivered things over the web, right? When all that happened, I thought, this is perfect. It's a startup, but within a big company, etc. And so I took that job. Now, one side note, my cash compensation doubled. Yeah, double. There um, you go. So exactly. So anyway, so I got there, and then um, it was it was an exciting time. My kids loved it because they got movies and games before anybody else did, right? So that they were like the cool kids on the block. Um, but ultimately, 
it became clear that Blockbuster really didn't have the vision for the future and where it was going. So I said, you know, I need to get myself to Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley is where things are happening and that's where I can actually go build. I did want to ask you about Blockbuster. I know that when you went in, you realized that the vision was not there that you needed. You felt like you needed, you felt like the company needed. Uh, but did and, and so it might have been a move where you say, eh, I'm not sure if I should have made that move. And were there any signs before you went to Blockbuster that maybe it wasn't the place for you to be? Honestly, no, there weren't signs that that I saw at mm. the time. You know what they said they wanted to do, et cetera, was all great. Um, but ultimately, what happened is I got to know Reed Hastings at Netflix because okay. Netflix at the time was a fledgling startup. Yes. And, you know, Netflix had all the technology, but they didn't have any of the relationships with the studios, right? Distribution, et cetera. Blockbuster had all the relationships with the studios, but I was building technology. So literally, Reed and team came out to Blockbuster pitch, let's take blockbuster.com, the brand, Netflix, the technology, put it together and go conquer the world. Um, and my boss didn't see it. Hmm. So that's when it was like, hmm, right? Time to move um, on. Exactly. And so that's why I, I went off to, to Silicon Valley. Okay. So you started with, uh, with the company and it had another name at the time. I wrote it down. What was the name? Zaplet. Yeah, actually, yep, Zaplet. Actually, I had two stops, two quick stops in terms of before Zaplet. Okay. Um, I went to a company called North Point. Yes. North Point was a telecommunications. They did DSL when high speed yes. internet, if any of you used high speed internet when it first came out, it was a DSL line. Yes. Um, and so I ran marketing and sales for them, chief marketing officer, mm-hmm. EVB of sales. Um, and they were that bought al- by Verizon. Um, they were, yeah, they did a merger, merger, absolutely, in terms of announce with Verizon, which ultimately fell through. And then AT&T ended up buying uh, the assets okay. of North Point. Got it. And from there, one of the board members at North Point wanted, invited me to go interview at his, one of his other companies, which was LoudCloud, run by um, Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen okay. at the time. And so I, same job, ultimately started out as chief marketing officer and then took over EVP of sales as well. And then from there was hired by uh, Vinod Kosla at Kleiner Perkins to be CEO of what was then called Zaplet. Today is known as MetricStream. Mm-hmm. And when you started there, uh, there were just 60 employees. You realized that it was completely dysfunctional and that you dropped it to 20 employees and then it grew to 1,000. Tell me about the time there. Oh, my goodness. So Zaplet, Zaplet was a mess. So you have to understand the timing. This was end of 2002, mm-hmm. right? Beginning of 2003. So the dot-com bubble had burst. For those of you that on the audience that are old enough to remember it, dot-com bubble had burst. There are companies, you know, just falling out of business because right. no money. So there are tons of CEOs in Silicon Valley now looking for jobs. And I'm now looking because I'm ready. I'm ready for my CEO job. I've done all the things I said I wanted to do, and I'm now ready. But I'm not from the Valley. Right. I don't look like the typical Silicon Valley CEO. Yeah. I don't have those networks. And here I am competing. So I knew I wasn't going to get an A play. An mm. A play is a company that the investors think is going to be successful. They're going to give it to people in their networks. Yeah. So I said, you know, I've done a lot of fix-its and turnarounds. I'm going to go find a problem child, but at a top-tier venture firm and with a strong partner. If I do that then even if I don't 
even if I'm not able to be successful, at least I've made a relationship, right? That can help me in the future because they will have seen what I've done. Yes. So I thought, you know, upside is great. You know, is the risk, can I live with it? Yeah, I can live with it. So that's what I went after. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what Zaplet was. As a matter of fact, it was worse <laughs> than, yeah. I, than I thought it was going into it. So here we have a company that honestly, you know, the technology they had built was great until the dot-com bubble burst. They had built software to help companies in IT create apps easily and quickly. But when companies had no money and their sales were declining, they weren't investing in software platforms. So I needed to find a problem that Zaplet could solve. Yes. And that's what I spent. So my first phase was stem the bleeding, right? Try to reduce our overall spend Mm -hmm. to give me some runway so I can go find a problem to solve. And once I find a problem to solve, then figure out how to solve it with our technology and then go forward. Right. So what problem did you find and, and what exactly did the company do? Sure. So the problem I found at the time was compliance, compliance and risk management, which now is falls off the tongue. But honestly, back then, people weren't really talking about, but every but companies were really struggling with it. And I thought, huh, we can use the software platform that Zaplet has, repurpose it to actually build applications to help build software to manage compliance, to manage risk. So did that. Now have a, now, now have a solution, which is great. Got a problem to solve that really needs to be solved. I've got a way to do it, but I don't have the right company. <laughs> I needed, you know, application engineers, not platform engineers. I need people who sold a business, not people who sold IT, right? It was just different. So with the help of Vinod Kozla, got introduced to Metricstream which was a software company really in the quality management and compliance space. So similar, uh, smaller than us. So we came together, merged the companies so we could leverage their you know, capabilities with Zaplet. Anyway, came out with a new metric stream and went after what we were calling at the time comprehensive compliance and risk, really creating a new space. And we evangelized. Oh my goodness. We, you know, we raised money by the way on that, on that new model. Um, so raised money and then evangelized and we, finally started to scrape and get some customers and we're seeing some momentum talking to the analysts. And then the good news is 2008 first quarter Gartner, which is a major industry analyst comes out and says, there is a new software category and it's called governance, risk and compliance and metric stream is a leader. Good. Oh my goodness, Susan. So after all that time of evangelizing and selling and pushing, our phones are starting to ring. When you say evangelizing, you're talking about promoting, preaching, you know? Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly right. So selling, really, but this is a great company, da-da-da-da, but that was the tipping point for first quarter of 2008, which was probably perfect timing because, as we know, the end of 2008 was the beginning of the Great great Depression. Exactly. So it was good and it was bad. So it was good that, yes, it's happening. And we said, great. We're going to invest in this momentum and we'll raise money on the growth trajectory in 2009. Well, second half of 2008 happened and wham, everything stopped. Everything stopped. Oh, and here we are like, oh my goodness, are we going to make it or are we not going to make it? So it was a, uh, it was tough haul after that, Mm -hmm. but we buckled down and fought it through. And ultimately MetricStream has been a leader in the governance risk and compliance ever since. Yeah. Year after year, we're global. They're global today with over a thousand employees and mm-hmm. doing very well. Good. Do you still have an ownership piece there? I do. Good. 
Good. I'm going to um, divert here a little bit and and then come back to some things I want to talk about related to, you know, gender and some of the things, some of the advice you have. Uh, but I'd like to know uh, where you grew up. Uh, tell me all about your background, your parents, your siblings. Sure. So I am, I'm one of four. I'm the eldest and my parents were crazy, Susan. <laughs> they so? had... They had four children in less than five years. Oh, my gosh. Boom, 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 boom. Um, so we grew up uh, very close, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. as a family, very competitive. Yeah. Um, and my father, we moved around a lot as my father built his career. I was in seven states before I was in high school. Mm-hmm. What, what did uh, he do for a living? He worked for IBM. He started out fixing typewriters. Dad didn't have a college degree, and he started out you know, right at the bottom, fixing typewriters. And ultimately, he did well. He worked his way all the way up till um, he was actually in management in the service division. Wow. Now, select, are these the old Selectric typewriters? This was pre-Selectric when Daddy got started. Oh, wow. So, uh, manual typewriters? <laughs> I don't know what they had, oh, but my. it was before the Selectric came out. Okay. Wow. Okay. So, and then um, you are the oldest of the four and it must have been awfully noisy in your home with four kids <laughs> in five years. Uh, so uh, your mother? Uh, mom, mom was a stay-at-home mom. Okay. You know, four kids. Absolutely. Understood. And dad, yep. And dad, my mom, my dad used to say, mom was the magician. He brought home his little paycheck and she turned it into a life. Yeah. So IBM sounds like he was transferred a lot. We used to call it "I've been moved." Exactly, exactly. You've heard that right. before. I've been oh, moved. Oh yes. Oh uh, yes. So I managed. Yeah. You, so you uh, you moved a lot, and I've found that other women that I talk to on the podcast that have moved around a lot, it's it's has taught them to be adaptable, to go into mm-hmm. situations and make friends, make make connections. Right. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, and you um, uh, you were married. Uh, you have children. Talk about that. Certainly. So I have uh, two children, a daughter and a son, and three grandchildren, which Good is pretty you. cool. I have yeah. two. It is pretty cool. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and one's in LA, one is in um, Tampa. The one with the three kids is in Tampa. I'm married. Uh, and my son is engaged, which is exciting. So, yep. And uh, yes, I was married for over 34 years. My husband, after a, a long battle with cancer, passed away last year. Yeah, I knew that, and I'm sorry. It must have been pretty tough. But I, uh, as I, as you know, I've researched you, and I, and I'm sorry that happened. And I know how how tough it was. And uh, I follow you on Twitter now, and your other social media. And you said something that was profound to me, and that is. Even through the grief, you decided to wake up and choose to be happy. Yes. That's a beautiful yes. thing. Tell me about that. Yeah. You know, I was raised, uh, you have to understand, I was raised in the turbulent 60s. Um, lots going on, you know, obviously Vietnam, you know, women's rights, but civil rights yes. was also very active. And for as many people that supported it, there were just as many that didn't. And you know, the world made it very clear to a little black girl that, you know, the odds just weren't in her favor. Um, So I learned early that, and mainly because my parents are really good about saying it, and which was, you can't control what happens to you because terrible things happen to me. Um, As far as bullying and... 
oh, bullying. I got beat up bad. Th- I mean, mm. imagine I'm in, I'm in first grade, Susan, and I'm walking to school every day and people would yell the most horrific things at me. Mm. I'm six years old. I mean, so started then it was anyway, it was horrible. So were you parents, one of the few women of color, you, girls? Uh, you, oh, I was, child. yeah, this particular, okay. yeah, this, in this particular school and neighborhood, it was outside. We had moved to Granada Hills okay. outside of LA. And yes, I was the only black girl in my, I might've been the school, but for sure in my grade. Um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty tough. And my parents, you know, what they would say is you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond. True. And so that's, you know, I've, I've, I've totally internalized that. And that's how I've tried to handle everything because stuff happens. They also, one of the other things that drummed into us is life is not fair. Life is not fair. Life is not fair. So don't even act like it should be. It's not. So that's where you're starting. Now from there, what are you going to do about it? Right. So at any rate. My mother used to say, life is not a bowl of cherries. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, that is true. That is true. But it is the, those little pieces of wisdom your parents tell you do influence, you know, wh- how we handle ourselves. Um, so it sounds like uh, your your father was the role model, um, the, the executive, uh, rose the ranks uh, at IBM. And so do you feel like he was modeling your ambition? You know, it's interesting. Um, I would say yes and no. And when I say yes and no, meaning it was really both my parents, because my mother was also very ambitious. I don't, I don't equate ambition to the professional role you might hold. Um, ambition is all about whether or not you achieve what you aspire to, mm-hmm. whatever that happens to be. And both my parents were ambitious. Mm-hmm. So yes, I got it from both of them. I mean, mom, I think it's a way to really you know, protect us and look out for us whenever we moved. Mom always ended up in the PTA, you know, running the church diocese. I mean, she, she was, and think about it, she didn't have long to do it. We only lived places, you know, two to four years. Right. So in that period of time, she always rose to levels of leadership in PTA and Girl Scouts and mm-hmm. church and whatever. So she was very ambitious. She just directed it a different way. So I got it from both. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like uh, your parents were really good about uh, raising you and your siblings as don't be a victim. There's a lot you can't control. Just suck it up and do better. Your dad worked hard and rose the ranks. Your mother took leadership positions. So um, that had to influence you in terms of your career. Yep. Oh, for, for sure. Mm-hmm. I still remember my mother wrote in my, you know, how you get a high school yearbook and everybody yes. writes in it. All right. Well, I never gave it to her to write in it, um, but <laughs> she took it and wrote something. Oh, yeah, exactly. So I'm flipping through it one day and I get to the very back and mom has written in it. And I'm going to paraphrase. But basically what she said was, hitch your wagon to a star. Hmm. Even if you miss, at least you'll hit the moon. Oh, I love that. That's yeah. great. Great advice. Yeah. yeah. Um few things I want to go here, places I want to go here with you. Um, you talk about when we have trouble being heard in an organization or in relationships that we need an echo. Tell me about the echo yeah. and why do we need it? Sure. So what happens is, and I'm sure a lot of women have experienced this, you're in a meeting, you're in a group, whatever it is, you say something and, you know, 
it's not really acknowledged or talked about. And then somebody else says the same thing later. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's a big discussion. And you're like, hey, wait, what's the deal? Don't you remember um, I said that? This comes exactly, up a lot. Yep. Exactly, right? So, you know, what I found is, okay, if, I've, if that's happened to me in a, in a group setting or a certain meeting, et cetera, um, then you can actually plan it. Like in a staff meeting or meetings you know are going to happen. If you have a point that you want to make sure you raise, you actually ask somebody. I mean, you have relationships. Say, listen, I'm thinking about bringing up this point. What do you think of the point? I think that's a good point. Great. When I say it, would you do me a favor and just reinforce it? Okay. And when that happens, then, okay, the point gets discussed, right? It gets tied with you. So that's one way to do it. But the other thing I tell, especially women, is echo other women. So, you know, if I say something, and nobody has the conversation, right? But then later on, somebody else raises the point. Someone else can say, oh, that, you know, that's a great point. I'm so glad you agreed with what Shelly was saying earlier, right? Mm -hmm. You can do that. You can even do it. You can even do it yourself very nicely. Oh, Jim, thanks so much for bringing up that issue again. I really appreciate it, right? I mean, so there are different ways to do it in nice ways, always nice ways, Um to try to get heard. Yeah, get heard. Uh, you you brought it up first. It wasn't him. And so there are ways to say, hey, that's a great idea, you know, <laughs> and yeah. I appreciate Thanks for you. building it. Right. Thanks for building on my point, right? right. Or <laughs> yes. whatever it might be. Just yes. Perfect. Yeah, that is, that's good. Yeah, I just gather from you and just getting to know you better when we've talked and, and the research I've done that a couple of things that I've noticed about you is that you have really good instincts about people. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. And that has uh, paid off for you. And I think that often women have instincts about people and we have emotional intelligence. We can come into a room and read, read people what's going on and that's had to have benefited you in your career. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The other thing I notice is that you have figured out what you need to do to be successful. And, you know, whether it's mentoring or rising the ranks or move out to move up or taking over a company, it's almost like you have a, you have a real knack for figuring out what you need to do. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, Susan, I, because I don't know that I necessarily was born with, with this, but I'm a really good listener mm. and you'd be surprised by how much knowledge and, you know, ideas, whatever people, I call it, they shed, they shed, they, yeah, they, they, they shed it. Yeah. They shed it. Um, and so the key is being attuned so that you actually listen to be able to take advantage of it. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, any better than anyone else on figuring out, okay, you know, these are exactly the right steps, but I am good at listening to people. So for instance, I picked the technology industry, not because I cared about technology. <laughs> I wanted to be a CEO, but I didn't care what industry it was in. Me too. Um, so, but I picked tech because I remember hearing somebody say that, you know, if you pick industries that are growing, the opportunities tend to be, greater and you tend to be able to move up faster if you're good because they're always short of resources since they're growing. And I thought, ah, oh. so I researched growing industries and picked tech. Um, the whole mentoring, you know, piece. I had a I had um, um, experience with um, IBM where they wanted to make sure that all the high potential, you know, people had 
mentors and they're putting in together programs. They came and asked us, who do you want to be your mentor? And I picked somebody that I knew. And he reached out to me and said, Shelly, don't pick me. You got me. Pick somebody else. And I'm like, oh, first of all, I didn't realize that you were a mentor. So you can start treating people as mentors. You don't have to have formal relationships. And you can have a bunch. You don't have to have just one. Well, nobody said that to me, right? Yeah. That's what I mean. You have to, you have to listen because there's so much information and great advice out there. Listen and read and you'd be surprised how that will help you do a better job of making decisions. Mm-hmm. Not only listening, but I th- you have to take that information in and fit it into your frame of reference, don't you think? That yes. you can listen to people, take it in, but you have to sort of categorize it like, don't forget that what you just heard here, because that is really good stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and, and use it in your career. And then over time, after years and years and years, I can remember some of the things that were said to me in 1985, you know, uh, and, and I use it, I use them today often. Would you mm-hmm. agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that you said in uh, one of the videos I watched uh, was that there are studies saying that men are hired for potential, but women need to prove it before they're hired. Talk about that. Yeah. Um, This is especially true when it comes to promotion. And unfortunately, it's just those, you know, one of those hidden biases. Yeah. But yeah, studies have absolutely showed that if a man seems to have potential, he'll be given an opportunity to stretch it, right? To see, okay, can he do it? Can he grow? But women aren't, all, aren't usually offered those kinds of stretch roles. They want to make sure they can handle it before they put them in. Um, and frankly, there's something that people say that just bugs the heck out of me yeah. that ties to this exact same point. And that is, you know, we're having lots of discussion about diversity and things and people will say, oh yes, we can hire a woman, but we can't lower the bar. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, I'm sure people on this call have heard this. I'm, I can't tell you how often I hear that. Oh, yes, we can have, but we can't lower the bar. Wait a minute. So that means in your mind that if it's not a male, then they automatically start here. Right. So therefore, the bar is somehow lowered. Right. Well, right. if you tie that comment with the point that we just talked about, about potential versus proving, mm-hmm. well, the, it all fits, right? Men, they'll take the risk because they know inherently men are capable, women inherently are not. So they've got to prove it it. before they move up. So that's the internal bias. So what happens is it takes us longer to move up ladders because we have to jump through more hoops before we're actually allowed into the next level, typically. Yeah, no, it's really true. And we've talked about that on this podcast a few times around, you know, the conversations that take place regarding male candidates versus female candidates. And uh, you talk about the male candidates and like, yeah, he's got a lot on the ball. He's had this experience and that. And then when the female candidates come up, you know, sometimes they'll even talk about, well, she's got kids, you know, so, you know, where where do we fit in? Or succession planning, what does her husband do? I mean, these are really, really fundamental, you know, biases against women and assuming that, that they know what the woman's motivations are. And you talk about in the, in the same video clip about women making sure that the people that they work with 
that that they report to, and you're very you were very eloquent in how you said this. Like, go in and say, "Hey, you know, just want to check in. How we're how are we doing on my? You know, I want to talk to you about my career. Can we talk about salary? And then set a time to meet with them again. That's it. Was really good. Good. Yes, good advice. I think. Yeah, the, the, re- the real key that I've found in terms of building my career is when I realized that I own my career. Yeah. I own, I own it. Yeah. Not Nobody else, not my boss, not the company, right? Not my mentors. I own it. And so if I own my career, then I need to make sure I've got a plan for it. And I can't keep it a secret because people don't know what I want to do then they can't help me do it. Right. You know, I'm a big believer, Susan, if you don't tell the universe what you need or what you want, the universe can't help you. That's Let right. the universe help you. The universe has helped me all the way through. Right. So, you know, if you aspire to something, tell people. Yes. I, I'm always surprised by how many people have these secret aspirations. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no, don't keep them secret. Let right. people know. Yeah, definitely. Oh, good advice. Yeah, I mean, and I did that at the beginning of my career. I just thought, I'm going to just gonna work like crazy. I'm going to be really good at what I do. And then they will see that and they will promote me, give me more money. And, and it didn't happen. Oh, you no. Know, I was working I, harder than everybody. Uh, bonuses were being handed out, promotions. But peop- I hadn't told the people what I wanted, you know. And and so until I did that, uh, the, the promotions and the money weren't happening for me, but I did what you did. And that is I worked in corporate environments, in lending institutions, similar to an RBC, you know, where I was with a bank, I was with a life insurance company doing lending. And I knew what you knew at one point, and that is I want to make as much money as I can, be as successful as I can on my own, uh, but I have to I have to leave this corporate setting to do that. Mm. So that's, uh, I, I can relate to that. And, you know, there's only so much you can make in a corporate setting. Will you be paid fairly? Maybe, maybe not. But I knew that in sales and in business, I could make more just living by the sword, dying by the sword, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's why yeah. sales is such a good opportunity for women because it's it's all numerical. <laughs> it is. It's like, here's your compensation plan. Um, yep. Why do you think that it's important for women, anyone, to get sales experience? I agree with you, by the way, but why do you think? Oh, you learn so much. So um, first, you learn that being told no is not the end of the world. And that no doesn't mean no forever. <laughs> All no means is not now um, because something's not right. So, yeah. and the best thing about getting a no is you can ask, why not? Why not? So if you never ask to get the no, you can never find out why something isn't happening. And when you find out why not, now you have an action plan to go do. Fine. Right. If I don't have enough experience or I don't have this thing or I haven't accomplished, fine. Then let me go tick, 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 get those things off. So asking no. So many people are afraid to ask because mm-hmm. they're afraid to get a no. In sales, you learn. <laughs> you're going to get no's all the time. You better keep asking or you're not going to get a yes. People don't call you back, right? Yep. Yep, absolutely. All those things. And and second, probably most important is you learn how to qualify. Hmm. And I found that qualifying really helps when it comes to managing your career. You want to get promoted, right? You want to get a new opportunity. 
you have a conversation and they say, oh, you know, you're not ready for that yet. Okay, what do I need to do to be ready? All right, now you ask the questions, fine. Take down your little notes and you say, okay, so if I do this and I do this and I do this, then will I be ready? Yes, you'll be ready, great. Now, I make sure I do my checkpoints every few months. Um, check, I've done, yes, I've done, right. Now we're at the end and now we both agree I'm ready. Right. So you learn all that yeah. in sales. Yeah, it's accountability. So, it's knowing, you know, I say in our company, you don't make deal money on deals that don't close. Let's start with that. So, <laughs> and that's the qualifying part you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And that is identify time wasters, identify the deals that are most likely to happen. And sometimes I think they're going to happen and other people don't, but I have a pretty good feel that it will and I'll just keep jumping over obstacles until we get there. So yeah, um, just really being in tune with where you should, should be spending your time based on how you want to be successful, right? Exactly. Yeah. We talked about uh, the imposter syndrome um, and then we talked about faking it till you make it. And I kind of think of those two things as different. as different. The imposter syndrome... And you can talk about what you think, but I think there were times in my career where I was qualified, I, I had the experience, I had the knowledge, I had the intelligence to do the job, but there were parts of my career where I felt like, wow, I'm really intimidated by all of these people. I hope they don't figure out that I don't know what I'm doing. To me, that's the imposter syndrome, which isn't true. I do know what I'm doing and I'm ready, but the 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 environment the dynamics of where i am is you know they're it's telling me that i'm not you know that maybe i am a fraud you know what i mean does that make absolutely sense? no okay yeah absolutely and i actually i define imposter syndrome the exact exact same way the way i'd link fake it till you make it is that's in essence what i do to overcome it okay so um i'm feeling like okay um right? Everybody's going to figure out that I don't really belong or whatever it might be, all those feelings we get. So I'm like, all right, you have to act the part. Yeah. So you fake it. So I fake that I know the confidence and I fake the poise and all that until I actually know what I'm doing, mm -hmm. which will happen. Um, and that's how I get through it. Because at the end of the day, every time you get a promotion or a new role or a new experience, right? You're basically starting at the bottom of the learning curve right? every time. So mm -hmm. it's perfectly normal for everybody to feel. And by the way, imposter syndrome is not just women. Men feel it too. Yes. Um, everybody feels this way. So I say fake it till you make it. And the other thing I say is I think it's really important to have people around you who build you up. Mm -hmm. I like to call them cheerleaders, but people who basically remind you how good you are, how capable you are, what you've done. Yeah. Because so much of the world tells us how we're not all that. <laughs> right. So it's yeah. so important to have somebody who reminds you. Right. Who does she think she is, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, how dare she be ambitious? What She's not fitting into the category of a woman, businesswoman that I think, which is defer to what I think, you know, listen and then not not speak up. And so you and I are not like that. And uh, <laughs> so um, one of my favorite stories we talked about, you, you mentioned that when you were appointed to one of your boards you serve on, you were the youngest person by 10 years, the only female and the only African-American person. So tell me about that and what you decided to do, how to handle yourself and what how, how you uh, became even a more successful board member? 
Yeah, that was actually my first board. So that's okay. Arbitron. I'm not on that anymore. Right. But that one was that one was a, a wonderful actual experience. I learned so much and it was such a, a great board. But I, I learned a number of things. So one was this whole thing about echoing. You know, I definitely, I definitely use that um, to be able to initially get be heard. Um, and I also, you know, learned that, um, you know, back to the the fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting in the boardroom and they've decided they're going to do a chairman's cup golf outing every year, the day before our strategic offsite. Okay. Yeah. And so the chairman's like, how's this sound? There was like, oh, it sounds good. So, okay. So we went around them and so was everybody in and everybody kind of went around them. Yep. 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 Comes to me. I'm not a golfer, right? Yeah. There's no way I'm going to say no. <laughs> so I said, I'm in now. This was like March. The thing yeah. was going to be in September. So I've got myself you a got few time. months. You got time yeah. to figure out what golf And that's exactly what I did. I went, I took <laughs> lessons. I got golf shoes. I did, you know, the whole bit. And all I wanted to do was not be a good golfer because I couldn't possibly be a good golfer in six months. I just wanted not to embarrass not myself. To embarrass I just want to be able to hit the ball, yeah. right? Yeah, um, but, right. But the key is that was another fake it till you make it. I'm like, you know, I'm not going to be the stereotype. So I'm, yeah. I'm going to do this. And it turns out, the other, several of the other guys were terrible golfers too. Oh yeah, <laughs> so, the, you know, yeah, you just I, get I've out and have with fun. Those guys, you know, they always think. I get really pretty nervous when I go out, and I think everybody's played a lot more than I have. And uh, I play a lot of golf, and I love it. I'm not good, but I do get by. I don't hold anyone up, and I do have some good shots from time to time. Mm-hmm. But I love that story. Uh, I love that story where you just raised your hand and said, "Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll be there. I'm going to play," and then. There are a lot of stories in this podcast like that where it's like, you know, the person that I'm interviewing has said this, like, I didn't know what the hell IT was all about. I didn't know what this or that was about, but I was going to find out. And people even criticize them like, she doesn't know anything about that. Why are we putting her in charge of that? She will find out. She will use her team to figure it out. She will research and game it the hell out of it until, you know, she does it. Right? It's just, yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful. Let me me close with a question. Um, uh, You had asked the question on Twitter uh, that where you mentioned all that we are in 2020, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and a lot of us are working from home. Uh, I normally go to two or three concerts every summer. I, I go to events. I travel, you know. And, and just like a lot of people, you know, I'm staying home a lot more. And so you pose the question, what are you doing for fun? So I would pose the question to you. What are you doing for fun? Uh, so I'm doing socially distanced walks mm. with friends or hikes so that I'm that I'm doing. Um, and then periodically a backyard, you know, one on one or one on two dinner mm. uh, or, or gathering. So I'm doing that. Um, FaceTime, FaceTiming with my grandkids. Yeah, me too. <laughs> right? so, yeah. Exactly. But it's, it's tough. I'm a very social person, Susan. Mm-hmm. I get my energy from people. Mm-hmm. So frankly, this is hard. Um, it's really hard. It's hard not being able to just kind of like, let's get together and go. Cause yeah. like you, I go do things. I'm always active. So this is very different for me. Yeah. Very different for me too. And I've had to, um, I mean, I like my quiet time, my downtime, but, um, I, I have, uh, this has been, this has been hard, especially in April, uh, when we were all home and not going out really at all. And, 
And uh, now, of course, we're wearing masks, we're living our lives, we're social distancing, so it is possible to live your life and socially distance and be very responsible around this virus, and you're, I'm sure you're doing it too. Yes, absolutely. Definitely wearing my mask and being very careful. Yeah. This is uh, very real. Yeah. This has been wonderful. I'm just getting chills because, I mean, you and I could talk for the next hour, uh, <laughs> maybe a couple of hours. I just relate to a lot of what you have to say. And congratulations on a successful career. It is really wonderful to just uh, see your success and, uh, and, and have you as a guest on Leading She. And uh, I'll end with um, uh, don't forget that uh, Shelley's book, comes out October 6th, uh, Unapologetically Ambitious, uh, Shelley Archambault. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And you can also follow me on social media. Yes. Um, LinkedIn, Shell Archambault at Twitter, as well as Instagram. Yeah, I'm following you now. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. Take care. Have a great day. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.